Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who's just doing this podcast to pay the bills until I can pursue my real dream, driving for Uber. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, I'm in New York, and I'm here in the studio with Lewis Hyman. He's the writer and economic historian and professor at Fancy at Cornell University. His new book is called Temp, How America Work, Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary. Lewis, welcome to Rico Deco. Thanks so much for having me here today. And also joining me in the studio, who's going to do most of this interview, because I'm feeling lazy today, is uh, Rico's data editor, who's much smarter than I am, Ronnie Mola. Hi, Ronnie. How are you doing? How's it going? I'm great. Good. Um, so Ronnie deals in a lot of data. I'm going to start off. We're going to we're going to talk in three sections and talk about various things. Um, but that's this is a big interest of mine. As you know, I've been doing these MSNBC shows on the future of work. So what I'd love to know, just to start off, and then Ronnie can jump in anytime, is how did you get started on this? Give us a little bit of your background. I think people want to understand where you, how you got to this topic. Well, my first two books were about, uh, you know, on equally happy topics, the history of personal debt in America. Mm-hmm. And as I was writing those books, I noticed that really the story of finance in America is also the story of work. Mm-hmm. And so I decided for my next project, I wanted to write about the history of how not just our finances became insecure, but also our work became insecure. Mm-hmm. That it wasn't before. So you were trying to sort of, because this is this sort of, this is the, the gig economy, right? The gig economy. Which isn't new, right? I mean, from... So, yeah, so what I'm t- so what I read about in the book is sort of how there was this creation after World War II of secure work, secure investment, big corporations, stable jobs, and how that all fell apart starting around 1970. And to understand not just the fall of that older model of the workplace, but also the rise of what came new. So consultants and temp workers and undocumented migrants mm-hmm. and how those were all pretty central to the remaking of capitalism since 1970. All right. So why don't we start with, though, the background of work in America, because it was a farm economy that moved. Why don't you go through that? Because that's an important way to how we get like to where we're taking my orals again. Exactly. Yeah, this is exciting. <laughs> it's exciting. Well, we I'm need to know. We need background. We get a Professor, jump answer my questions. Yeah, so I think the big thing to realize is that nearly everybody worked in the agricultural business in the 19th century, free or enslaved. And this was the way our economy functioned. And so Mm -hmm. we were an export-based economy. We uh, made cotton. A little over half of our GDP before the Civil War was either the products made by enslaved people or related to that, like textiles. And what's kind of interesting to me is how that changes. So we think of capitalism and corporations as these very static things. 
but after the end of slavery, we reinvent our our capitalism to be on the basis of free labor and oil and all these other things. So we see in the history of capitalism, it's constant reinvention. And this happens again after... Right, people the, don't think of it. That's why I wanted to get to it. It changes really quickly. It changes really quickly. Uh, and so we think of the corporation... And they're difficult changes, by the way. That's what I was arguing this with Mark Andrees, and he was saying what's happening now in the new job economy was that it's like farm to manufacturing. I'm like, well, that took 70 years and was super socially uh, problematic that you aren't remembering because you're not a student of history because you people in Silicon Valley remember nothing. It's what uh, computer science is called a non-trivial right, problem. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I was like, there's some issues that go along with it. And my feeling was that the work change that's happening now is really severe and fast and stuff like that. That's why I wanted people right. to be Right, industrial revolution, incredibly painful. Also, mechanized farming, super painful. You know, like, yes, we all ended up with jobs you know, how, however many years later, but how In the long, long run, as Kane said, we're all dead. So I think, yeah, so we moved, the mechanical thresher is the best analogy to this in the sense that it put millions of people out of work. And so when I talk about AI, I often talk about mechanical threshers. Um, now, that didn't naturally mean we ended up in a straight line from the mechanical thresher to the nice suburban house with two kids in the garage. It took 100 years of bloody warfare mm -hmm. and near insurrection. Right. Yeah. And you write about a number of things that intermediary things that showed us having temporary work. Could you give us some examples? Sure. Uh, so one of the things I write about that's important to realize is that people have always worked in a sort of a gig way. You could always, there would always be work to sell your, if you had a, a man with a strong back could always sell it. Right. Yeah. You know, find something to do. Um, but what's different after World War II is that it gets mediated through agencies, whether those agencies are temp agencies like that at Manpower Incorporated or consultancies like McKinsey and Company. Um, these are new ways of sort of selling people for the short term. And this emerges in the midst of an economy based around long-term investment and secure work. So there's a little bit of an irony there um, in how it comes about. Mm -hmm. Is that so, what you want me to talk about? Yeah, yeah. So iPhones and Uber didn't create the gig economy. This is something that had social underpinnings, economic underpinnings yeah. for a long time now. Do you want to talk a little bit about Silicon Valley's history of temporary work? Because that didn't, you know, that didn't start 10 years yeah, ago either. It's very important to realize that Uber is the waste product of the service economy. Oh, I like that. What do you mean by that? So I, I mean, I mean, <laughs> waste the, product. Yeah. So shitty, in other words. Uh, I don't use these kinds of words, but yes, they, I, just did. I, I do too. You uh, may use them on this program. Okay, very you may good. Curse uh, the, the awful. Um, so why Uber is the waste product is that it relies on a bunch of people who don't have an alternative. And this is the thing you have to realize, that the alternative between driving for Uber is not like a, a good job in a factory with a union wage mm -hmm. or working in a stable office job. It's slinging coffee at a Starbucks where mm -hmm. you may or may not get the hours you need. And that is what people are shoring up. They're shoring up, getting enough hours, trying to make ends meet. So oftentimes people talk about the gig economy as, quote unquote, supplementary income. Mm -hmm. It's only a supplement. It's not well, like the companies talk about it. Like that. Sure. That's Freedom, the supplementary income. You can do it on your own time. They, yeah, make your own schedule. Yeah. Yeah. It's not I mean, it's not supplement if you needed to pay for your kids braces or food or rent. So I think when we talk about the gig economy, you know, it's very easy to say this is awful and people point to it. But really, those kinds of awful problems are already present, have been since the 1970s. Uh, the, the working Americans have faced increasing income volatility, income inequality. And this is just, you know, reified in the, the sort of so-called app-based 
digital the gig economy. Gig economy yeah. Yeah. So what's causing the income volatility? What, what's causing people to actually take these gig jobs? So one of the things I argue in the book is that there was a wholesale move away from how corporations thought they should be organized um, from both business leaders and policymakers and investors right after the so-called conglomerate craze Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the 1960s. So in the 1960s, corporations were making tons of money just like now, right? So corporations were making tons of money and they were buying up lots of other companies. And so but employees, employees, employees. Employees, employees, employees. And scaling. And scaling, scale, scale. But because of monop- anti-monopoly laws, they were buying these unrelated companies that didn't create any more profits. Golf and Western. like Golf and Western. Yeah. You know, Litton Technology, Litton Industries, um, LTV. So a small electrician buys his way to being the 25th largest company in America. And it turns out they were all terribly run. Mm-hmm. And they well, all... How could you run them? How could you run them? Right. Um, and this engulfs about 90% of the Fortune 500. Mm-hmm. They all fall apart. And then people begin to cast about for alternative models. They blame the corporation, the post-war corporation, the post-war world of work uh, for this. And into that intellectual void come consultants and business gurus who sell a new idea of how to run the corporation mm-hmm. leanly, with only limited commitment to their workers and employees. And et voila, you have the origins of today's firms. And so to understand the history of today, it's not just about technology. The real technology that changes is not the phone, it's the corporation, Mm -hmm. how we organize people. Mm -hmm. But that's different in Silicon Valley, though, how they were organizing people, because this would be teams that grow up for a single purpose, essentially. So the history of Silicon Valley is really important. I write a lot about Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. in this book, because Silicon Valley is emerges as the leading sector of the economy in the 1970s. By 1980, it's the most profitable part of the economy. Mm-hmm. And, it's and that's the, even before the boom, the really big boom. It's before the first Silicon Valley sort of semiconductor yeah. and right. m- manufactured boom. And it is really, really reliant on a very different kind of manufacturing. You know, Silicon Valley is never unionized the mm-hmm. way that Detroit is Not unionized. Silicon Valley never provides good pay for its frontline manufacturing workers. Mm -hmm. And Silicon Valley actually was reliant on hundreds of thousands of undocumented migrants Mm -hmm. who are outside of those new laws that emerged in the early 70s called OSHA. Mm -hmm. All the environmental standards, all the labor standards. This is to create the chips. To create the chips. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were born subcontracted in Mm -hmm. a way that really portends the way that corporations are organized today. Mm-hmm. It was the rehearsal for what was to come. And so, then they moved them overseas. Then they moved them overseas. In right. fact, they trained their own replacements. Uh, right. So in the book, I write about the first Macintosh factory, mm-hmm. uh, which was it? it was right across the street from the Numi plant where Toyota first built cars. And of course, where today Tesla has its own operations. Mm-hmm. And it was in this. And so I trace the history. The histories of Silicon Valley, as you know, are largely about Steve Jobs mm-hmm. or the Waz uh, right. or these other kinds the of the garage men and, and sort of their innovations. But they're reliant on hundreds of thousands, mostly immigrant women, mm-hmm. right? So every time somebody says robot in Silicon Valley, they usually mean woman, generally woman of color. And in the book, I trace how this idea of automation is used to justify, this idea of progress is used to justify um treating people miserably, workers yeah, miserably. You make this really interesting point um, about how people right now perceive of Uber um, and you compare it to Etsy. They both are you know, similar things. They're platforms on that are selling other people's work that aren't necessarily indebted to the people who are working for them. But everyone gets mad at Uber and not so much for Etsy. And you said the reason for it 
is because we don't value women's labor. Absolutely. I mean, I think the fundamental uh, question is who counts? And in the post-war period, who counted were white men and everybody else didn't. So if you were a woman, if you were a person of color, if you were living here but not an American citizen, your rights uh, didn't matter as much to the people who wrote the rules and ran the companies. And that's certainly true today as well. Um, And I think that you know, this is how we get upset about Uber because it's a, it were, men were taxi drivers, right? Um, and women were not taxi drivers. And so it's okay for Etsy. It's a downgrade for men, but it's, it's... Just like we don't really care about the cars that people drive for to deliver our pizzas. You know, no one ever is after dominoes for the depreciation on their, on their cars because we imagine incorrectly that they're all teenagers. Mm-hmm. And so this question of who counts is so important to understanding why the rules are set the way they are. Right. So let's go back to that idea that so here we have the company in Silicon Valley growing up in a way people, they had this image of the garage, the, the garage company of a group, a team of small, usually men together um, making one thing or mm-hmm. making one idea. Sure, the garage counts uh, as a place of innovation, and certainly there are ideas that are important. Shockley and all those other guys mm-hmm. are inventing new technologies. Of course, those technologies were reliant on government you know, funds in of a lot course. of ways that are just now written out of that story. Yeah. Um, but they're also reliant not just on Quonset huts, which aren't as much a part of the story, the way in which um, Quonset huts also filled with men, just men who didn't speak English, were dipping those different kinds of chips into big boiling vats of material Mm -hmm. and without which the rest of Silicon Valley couldn't happen. So it's important to realize that those men at the top matter, certainly, in terms of their ideas. um, And often they were had the best impulses. So I read a lot about the history of Hewlett Packard Mm -hmm. and how Hewlett Packard goes from being this shining example of commitment to workers to sort of you know, falling apart and sort of laying people off and losing its taste for innovation. Mm -hmm. And that story takes place in the 80s and 90s as they move away from focusing on innovation towards focusing on short-term finance and profits. And the story of that is deeply embedded with McKinsey's reorganization beginning in the early 1980s. So these consultants selling a certain vision of how the corporation ought to be run. All right. When we get back, we're, we're here talking with Lewis Hyman. He's a professor at Cornell University, and he's the author of a new book called Temp, How American Work, American Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary. We're going to get more into that and, and the role that tech has played in this uh, going forward. And we're here with Ronnie Mullet. She is my co-host, and she works at Recode as Recode's data editor. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
We're back with Lewis Hyman. He's a professor at Cornell University and the author of a new book called Temp, um, and it's about how the American workforce has changed. We're also here with Recode's data editor, Ronnie Mulla. Ronnie, you'd write a lot about data, like a lot, and you use a lot of work data and stuff like that. Right. And, and so we tend to focus on the idea that uh, that this is this phenomena is new, is new, which you have been talking about. It's not. Talk, let's talk about how it how it morphed because the Silicon Valley companies are the way people think. You know, Google did business this way. Oh, it's the loose campus. It's the weird food. It's the this, the that. Um, that then has morphed into something else. Yeah. What What's the gig economy now? Could you just give a maybe sure. a definition? Sure. Uh, the gig economy. The the easiest way to think about it is this very dissatisfying negative definition mm-hmm. of it's all the work that doesn't look like what you expected. So it's right. not nine to five. It's not secure. It's ad hoc. And it's what economists and sociologists call alternative work arrangements. And so it can encompass a wide variety of things. In the book, I call them all temp jobs, you know, and then it sort of lumps together independent contractors and actual people working for temp agencies, as well as freelancers and gig workers. And the gig economy certainly has this exciting overtone of futurism and technology and being mediated through apps. But of course, most freelancers today are not working through apps. You know, um, less than 1% of the workforce Mm -hmm. works through these kinds of apps. Most freelancers are just working, finding jobs, scrounging for work on their own, maybe assisted by the internet, but not you know, directed by their phones to act. Which is kind of how we started talking. We were discussing how big the gig economy is. Yeah. And um, you actually have a product project called the uh, Gig Economy Data Hub because there, I was trying to find out how, how many people or how, what percentage of the population is actually working in these gig jobs. It really depends a lot on your definition. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics recently came out with a report that they the last time they did it was before the iPhone. So you expect the number of, you know, temporary workers or contingent laborers, as they call it, to have boomed, it actually went down slightly. So they're not measuring it. How how is how does that work? Yeah, so it's really easy to find out if somebody has a normal job. I say, did you work last week? You say yes. Did you have? Do you, are you employed? And you say yes. And if you ask somebody if they from who drives for Uber, you know they drive for Uber. You know, are you full time? Are you part time? Are you unemployed? Are you hmm. temporary? They answer different people answer yes to all those questions. Hmm. So the way we even conceptualize work itself doesn't fit neatly into our surveys, which the Bureau of Labor Statistics is fully aware of, and they're trying to figure out how to ask these. Right, questions. They, they created this for a different time period. These yeah. questions, and so they want to have sort of time series data. They want to make sure that the data lines up over time, and they're fully aware that it's it doesn't. And this is a real tricky thing because if you ask somebody if they worked in these kinds of gig economy days, no matter how clearly you you ask it. If you ask in the last two weeks, a lot of people say no. If you ask, um, you know, it's it's 10%. You know, if it's in the last few weeks, then that's what they say. 10% of the people are working in this this gig economy or contingent work economy. If you ask over the last 12 months if they've done this, it's about 40%. You know, and certainly for young people, it's about half. Uh, so, this, so we have anywhere from 10% to 50% of the population exactly. is working in the gig economy. It really depends on who you are and when you ask. And to say that it has to be done every two weeks for it to count is ludicrous, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Especially when your hours shift, right? This is, this, is why the, I, this is why it's very hard for people who have salaries to understand the constraints of working people. So that the, the third of Americans that only have shift work Right. And may not get the hours they need from week to week. They need to make that up. Right. Which makes me think of um, 
you talk about how people who are doing the gig economy, they're doing that to supplement their income. They're not making as much anymore. And and you had some thoughts as to why they're not making a, a stable amount anymore. Sure. So, I mean, if you ask where technology really intervenes in the workplace, it's not the iPhone. It's the Kronos uh, system that manages time cards for mm-hmm. most major chain restaurants that minimizes the number of hours people work from week to week to make sure that they don't go over the minimums that kick them from part-time to full-time where they have to start earning benefits. And this kind of just-in-time workforce Mm -hmm. is right at the center of this. All right, Uh, talk about that just-in-time workforce because, again, it's something that I think technology's done, like that's created suddenly. The the workforce going forward is going to be a largely just-in-time workforce, correct? Correct. And, you know, the just-in-time manufacturing came to America right across the street Mm -hmm. uh, from that very first Macintosh plant at the Numi plant, now Mm -hmm. Tesla, where Toyota had invented this uh, as a way to minimize their inventory stocks. And it makes a lot of sense, and you do the math, and it's good to go. Totally. Uh, And this just-in-time workforce then becomes a model for a way to think about supply, whether that's labor supply or components. And so this this is what these algorithms are all about. And it's a very one-sided algorithm that works for the employer and not for the employee. Mm-hmm. And so working Americans are left scrambling to fill out their time. So in a way, Uber is a godsend for some people. And it absolutely is. So JP Morgan did this really amazing study a few years ago and found that it becomes a direct, these kinds of on-demand jobs is a direct substitute for debt. So when people have access to them, they borrow less, full stop. And so, yeah, for some people, it's a, it's a great way to fill out their their time card, but it's not as good as a real job. But it job. still sucks. It's like it's a great way because they don't have enough hours to make the amount of money that would make their living sort of regular and sustainable. It sucks to be a working person in America if you're <laughs> in this. I mean, I think that's the point, that the mm-hmm. problem isn't Uber. The problem is working in this kind of capitalism. But it's not like Uber isn't part of the problem or doesn't contribute to the problem there afterwards. Like, sure. I mean, Uber could be, it could give them a bigger share of the money. Um, I'm sure their venture capital oh, would dry me, up. I get emails every day from drivers who talk about that. The, yeah. the tricks Uber plays with Yeah, them. they do tricks. Uh, Lyft plays tricks. Everybody plays tricks. This right. is this is part of, you know, they want, they use this language of entrepreneurship and independence they and flexibility the and, and autonomy. Drivers, right. And earlier in the program, you asked about how this is similar to the late night to the agricultural uh, revolutions of the 19th mm-hmm. century, mechanical thresher. Well, people bought these mechanical threshers and then they borrowed a lot of money to buy them. They borrowed money for land. Oh, watch out. When everybody has makes a lot of wheat, suddenly those prices crash and you can't pay back your debts. Right. And that leads us to the populist revolts of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So and, what's the corollary? The, the cars lose their value? or uh, The corollary is that people think they are using this as a path to autonomy and independence, just like on the farms. And in fact, what's happening is that people in the East or in the West, in this case now the San Francisco, are making all the money mm-hmm. um, and control the railroad. Today is the equivalent of controlling the app. Uh, and those are the people that make the money. And you know, I, 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 I absolutely think that workers are utterly fungible to them. As much as they go on and on about it, I think it's just 
And by the way, it was really interesting. A couple of years ago, I had an interview with Travis Kalanick, the, one of the co-founders of the infamous Travis Kalanick. Um, and he actually managed to tell the truth on, in an interview once. And I said, what do you think about, you know, we were talking about various things and his reputation. And I said, what about, uh, this is early, early in the self-driving phase, you know, before, before it was really gotten as big as it has. And it's still going to be slow, by the way. And he, I said, what's going to happen, you know, with self-driving and the, all your drivers, you know, what's going on? He goes, well, you know what the problem with my business is, is the guy in the front seat. He costs a lot of money. And if I can get rid of him, that would be a business. And I, literally, there was a sharp intake of breath by everybody in the room because he actually told the truth. And I went, thank you. Like, mm-hmm. thank you very much. And I was like, yay, he said it. Like, what was the truth? Which was because he has no ability to control himself. And it was really a fascinating moment because it was really the truth. It was just as soon as they can replace you or or if you go to, say, um, a coal mining, you know, because the, the president is always going on and on about coal mining. And, like, they're not doing the coal anymore. And if they do it, it'll be by machine, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And so it's an, it's an interesting time when they, they these workers are fungible. So part of that, yeah, and, and it's important to realize that the sort of driving ethos of tech people is the virtue of abstraction. Oh, oh hello. Right? So, hello, you know, Alex now, Jones. Now, nice now, to meet yeah, you. now that we're talking. Alex Jones, meet the workforce of America. Go ahead. Yeah, so this, so this uh, I mean, abstraction, I mean, this is a tech podcast, so I can mm-hmm. talk about computer programming, right? Sure. This idea of abstraction, encapsulation, the idea of not knowing how it works. Mm-hmm. This is the this is what computer scientists are taught in schools as the best thing going. And that's exactly what this just-in-time fungible workforce is. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising to me that they, they hold it up as virtuous uh, and inevitable. So the flip side of that is I don't think anybody, or rather very few people, voluntarily like to mine coal. Very few people voluntarily want to drive me around Manhattan. Uh, A lot of people do it because they need the money. So, you know, and this is the other side of the mechanical thresher, that it's nice that we don't all have to go out into the farm every fall and bring in the wheat, right? And right. so it can liberate us. So this this question of how that productivity is distributed is not a question of economy. It's a question of politics. It's mm-hmm. a question of organization, institutions, social norms. And so technology is easy. What's hard is shifting a culture. Right. What's right. hard is shifting a politics. Right, right. But it inevitably leads to the fact that less people are needed, correct? I mean, we're going to get into that in the next section, talking about where it's going, where work is going. But it, it inevitably leads to the idea is that you, you may not have a job. As, as you have now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Oh, 100%. No, oh, no. I, yeah. I, I always say anything that can be digitized will be digitized. And everyone's like, oh, that's interesting. I'm like, no, no, think about that. Like, think about it very carefully and, and walk it out. Not just the fact that we'll have self-driving cars, but we won't have... Uh, uh, mechanics. You won't need a mechanic. You won't need an insurance company. You won't need, uh, you know, uh, re- the way retail's done. It will not be at malls. There, what about the mall people? What about Podcasters. the people? Podca- no, that's hard. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Ronnie, I'm in jobs where you creative. <laughs> so creativity is the only thing that matters, really. I mean, I think being curious and being creative, um, in short, being human is mm-hmm. what matters. So things that aren't human are things that a machine should do. I write in the book that no human should do the work of machine of a machine. Yeah, right. And that's to me, that's not a bad thing. The, the optimistic futurist in me loves the fact, loves this. Um, but I think the question is, well, what do we do with people? And we have a system set up, an educational system, an economy that has treated people like machines for a mm-hmm. hundred years. That's what industrialization right. is. And in fact, the original uh, computers were people. Were women. women. Were women. Which yeah. is not, not to be ignored, right? So um, so this this is, you know, why are we surprised when the robots finally come, they take our jobs? Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
you know, it's a godsend. It could be the end of paperwork, which I think all of us or hate. Or mining. Or, or mining or all the other things. But it does mean what do we do uh, politically and socially to make sure that our societies aren't ripped asunder between a new kind of digi, digital ruling class. And, you know, that's where the dystopian utopian visions. And it's why history is so important, because when you talk to people in Silicon Valley, as much as I love them, they are people who've largely just read sci-fi novels. Mm-hmm. And if you well, they just, have no historical underpinnings whatsoever. They no uh, humanities. No. Yeah, and they they think of they think of the transition uh, from the agricultural economy to the industrial economy as a smooth line, mm-hmm. rather than in eighteen seventy seven railroad cars with machine guns reconquering parts of Pennsylvania when the workers rose up and destroyed the tracks and overthrew. The bosses. Exactly. So the whiskey rebellion even further back. Uh, and then it, later unions. And unions <laughs> Union that, rights. you know, shut down supply chains, you know, beginning in Flint, you know. And so I, I think that, you know, I personally would like to come to an equitable solution to this before we have to put machine guns on the back of Ubers. I think that and would require an intelligent political uh, atmosphere. I It will be necessary, so... Anyway, when we get back, we're going to talk more about this because I think it's really important also to talk about where we're going with work and what we're, we're going to talk about UBI uh, and some other issues and how when we are in a temp economy, what that means and what people do for meaning, for money and uh, for their lives. We're here with Lewis Hyman. He's a professor at Cornell University and he's author of a new book called Temp. And I'm also here with Ronnie Muller, who is my co-host. We're back with Lewis Hyman. He's a professor at Cornell University. And his new book is called Temp, How American Work, American Business, and American, the American Dream Became Temporary. Oh, it's very depressing, Lewis. And we're here with Ronnie Mala, who is our co- my ho- co-host. He's also the data editor at Recode. Okay. So uh, sometime in the near future, or depending on how long you think it's going to be, uh, everything's going to be automated. A lot of us are going to lose our jobs. What are the jobs of the future and what aren't? Yeah, I think it's really hard to guess in advance. I mean, I don't think podcaster was a job that Mm -hmm. you could have predicted 10 years ago. So, but we do know what those will be. They will be these things that stake out what it is to be human, to be curious and creative and also caring. So I think that the jobs of the future will be us sort of caring for one liberate us to do the things that humans like to do naturally, that we don't have to be corralled into doing. You know, you have to corral someone into going into a dark mine and getting black lung. You don't have to corral someone into taking care of their children. You can, don't. Can you give me some examples of what those yeah. jobs might be? Yeah. So, I mean, I like think what's very human that what's very that human. I think I, I think I think caring for children or the elderly. I think doing scientific research. I think making art. I think explaining and meaning making in various ways is very human. Um, I think learning new things and doing things that are not repeatable. Um, so this podcast most likely will not be the exact same podcast as the next one you have. And those kinds of novel things will be very appealing to people in the future. And if this seems impossible, it also should seem impossible in 1850 that most of us would be sitting around moving paper or selling things or typing or all the things that most people do in the service economy. So, and, and that less than 2% of us would work on farms. And even the people who work on farms are basically managing robots. Mm-hmm. So I think that those are the kinds of things I think about um, and in a positive way. 
Now, it could easily right, go in a very different way as well, well in terms okay, of the, We're not going to be selling because why? Stores are terrible. <laughs> like, they just don't make sense to run around a store and go collect things like you're the hunter, like in a forest or something. You know what I mean? That's what it is. It's a hunt and grab economy, essentially. You go and find your things. I find walking around a supermarket idiotic at this point. I think it's very depressing to imagine all those giant cavernous air-conditioned warehouses right. that we're burning coal for so that yeah. some people can drive up in their car, oil-burning cars. Just not, it's not going to happen. And then all those jobs go. That All those jobs. Yeah, all those retail jobs are gone within right. the next 15 yeah. to 20 years. We had the head of Walmart at Code a couple of years ago, and I think I'm the only one who heard him say, we probably will only have 10,000 square foot Walmart stars because just to people to go in and sometimes... So no more out. super Walmart. And everyone's like, mm. I'm like, what did he just say? Like, oh, um, you know, the repercussions were massive. The same thing. So we won't have that. We won't have, we will probably have self-driving cars. So we won't have all the jobs that go with that. We might not even own a car, right? You might not even have it. Um, so and it, when you think about doctors, there's all kinds of jobs that are diagnostic. That radiologists. Radiologists. I feel bad for the radiologists. I do too. I say that. Someone's mother was like, my son's – I'm like, no, no, don't be a radiologist. There <laughs> isn't going to be any radiology. Um, so when you think about that, talk about more of the jobs that are going. What are the areas? Retail? Uh, yeah. yeah which ones are going I, first? I think the most important one is retail. Certainly for working people, uh, the people who ha- are already skilled in ways that they can't access higher paying jobs, retail, the places where people go as entry level positions. Uh, retail's gone. Thing, anything that can be done three times, has to be done three times in a row, will be automated. Right. And I think part of this acceleration I write about in the book is this idea of digital migrants. Mm -hmm. So sometime in the next few years, uh, we will see robots that are teleoperated by somebody else. And and I think people aren't as attentive to this as they need to be. The Mm -hmm. intersection of machine learning, virtual Mm -hmm. reality, and robotics. Sure. and I've already seen robots that you can... Can you explain that a little bit? It's, yeah, unpack it a little. It's a little... It's it's really interesting to me. Uh, if you... I went to a lab a couple of years ago at Berkeley, and you could put on virtual goggles, you know, like we all know mm-hmm. how these... Well, I guess six people have of the mm-hmm. Oculus Rift or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could run a robot body through that. And the people there were very excited about this towel-folding robot that could, like, see a towel and fold it and... You know, the, I sat there for an hour waiting for this towel to be folded and it mm-hmm. never it's could. Ridiculous. And, and I hate folding, so mm-hmm. I was super excited to see mm-hmm. this. Um, and I put the goggles on and I could fold the towel almost instantaneously, even though I've never... So using a, the robot, you could fold the towel? I could, I could reach to the robot's arms and fold the towel. And I realized when I, I did this, I was like, oh, well, I could do this anywhere. And so I can easily imagine the next couple of years some entrepreneur offering very cheap house-based robots, the same way that Tesla used its own drivers to train its autopilot Mm -hmm. to use just hundreds of thousands of people around the world through some kind of online labor program Mm -hmm. when putting on virtual reality goggles somewhere in Bangladesh or Mexico, and then then operating these robots. And then because of machine learning, the the robots would learn how to do all kinds of manual tasks. So all that physical labor that we now think can't be put overseas, all those migrants that... People so even the digital migrants lose their jobs. So even the, the physical migrants would lose their jobs, but then the digital migrants would then be replacing themselves. And right. then there'd be a next step where you have, you know, one or two people orchestrate taking over. It's a one. little bit like Reddit Player One when you were watching them do that. You know, they were somewhere else, but they weren't in the place. You know, absolutely. Yeah. hundred. It's really interesting. I just took a, a, a virtual reality um, roller coaster ride. I'm not even going to go. Did you barf? Me. No, not at all. 
I'll explain it in a column soon to come. Okay. But it was really interesting, and I was thinking, what do you? How do you replace? It made me think of jobs. It was a really interesting way to think about it. What about? Um, so, what about the caring professions? Because a lot of people think there's going to be robot caretakers. There was just a story in Atlanta. One of the things about robot sex robots, you know, and yeah. that's been in sci-fi many, many times. Sure. The first place those dudes go. Yeah. People um, and people love sex. I hear. So uh, you know, it's a lot of money in that. Those dudes always go there with, yeah. the, with the sex robots. Um, so talk about that. Like, what happens? I, let's stick with the caring ones because I don't. I don't feel like talking about sex robots. Um, but <laughs> what, but what about the caring ones? Because one of the issues I when I was at MIT many years ago, and I think I've talked about this before, is um, they have problems with the eyes. Mm-hmm. They can't get the eyes right, and so people are hard to replace. The uncanny valley. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think visual tasks are super hard to program and fix, and this is why people, virtual reality is so key here, right? Mm-hmm. It's that intersection where virtual reality can train people to change bedpans, mm-hmm. train the robots as they observe. You know, machine learning is all inductive, mm-hmm. right? It's pattern recognition. It's doing something a million times, and those kinds of things will be initially done by people overseas or in poor rural communities in the U.S., probably poor rural communities first, um, and then will be automated over time. And, you know, we're going to have a lot of old people pretty soon, mm-hmm. and uh, and especially in Europe and in East Asia. So this will, the robots, this is the argument that some people make, that the robots are coming just in time mm-hmm. to save us from our aging. Right. We're not going to get into robot rights, but... But that, none of this is artificial. None of this is like, you know, Westworld-style artificial intelligence. Right. This right. is all narrow AI. Mm-hmm. Right, so everything that can be digitized will be digitized. We're gonna, a lot of things will be automated. And it'll be digitized by cheap people. This is the by important part to right. realize right. that these things are always based... In the book, I read a lot about transitional labor forces. And they're the people who don't count mm-hmm. in the sense that... They, you know, people of color, women, migrants, people who are left out of the social compact. And where we draw those lines will matter just as much going forward as it did in the past. Uh, so if we don't have jobs in the, in the future, if if we don't get these caregiver jobs, there there might be things that are automated out so that we, you know, have a lot more free time, which could be its own thing. But um, how do we deal when we don't have a job? What do we do? So talk about UBI. I've had a lot of UBI. This is universal basic income. How do we pay for this? Yeah, so the universal basic income is very exciting to people who think automation is going to get rid of all humans, mm-hmm. all, all current now, human Now, there's some interesting people. Chris Hughes is interesting. I just did Annie Lowry. who wrote a book about it. There's a big, t- you know, Sam Altman is all yeah. over the place. With there's it. a lot, you know, and whether or not there's a space for people going forward. I think people will always be valuable. We're so versatile. We're creative in a way the machines are not. Um, there's tricks to UBI, right? Um, and there's different ways of doing it. You can either just have a tax and redistribute distribute. You could have something where everyone, the, the, the model I favor harkens back to the early 19th century model, the corporation, where you couldn't have a corporate charter unless it fulfilled a social good. And right now, as people often say, that we've socialized risk and privatized profit. Um, you know, so I think that people should get a cut of that profit. So every time you issue a stock, some public holding company gets a share of that stock and we all get a cut of that rather mm-hmm. than a direct payment. Because I think it's important to not feel like we are just giving money away to people. I think mm-hmm. that purpose and autonomy matter a lot to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do worry what happens if we just start giving people money out. You see that kind of hopelessness that comes yep. with that kind of just direct payments. Whereas if we had a sense of shared ownership, it would t- tap into older American values. You had a different term for 
universal ba- basic income or a different idea. You called it something like an investment. Yeah, I think it's an investment in each other. I think mm-hmm. that's a better way to think about it. Instead of a universal basic income, I think it should be think of think of it because you go talk about Ready Player One again, right. the sci-fi vision mm-hmm. where people are living in those stacks stacked right. houses and it's all very bleak. Right. Well, I don't want to live in that world. I don't and I think robbing the danger of automation is is not just losing your job but losing purpose. Right. And so figuring out how we can liberate people from tedium and drudgery, which of course is what most people have at As their job, job right. every day. Um still, but figuring out how to enable them. Not everybody will be able to be a research scientist, right? right. I mean, for, right, full stop. Like, that's just not how well, humans work. You're removing tedium and drudgery, but you're not replacing anything else. So tedium and drudgery is better than nothing else. Like, well, tedium and drudgery is better than starving, but it's not better than taking care of, you know, elders or children right. or art making Presumably. art. Yeah. Okay, so if we're, ma- we're making I mean, art. I am going to have comfortably assert that. That's, that I'm saying that's we train filing. people not to think like that. Of yeah, course. and I think I think what we solve we should be solving for is not giving everybody terrible jobs, mm-hmm. but trying to figure out how do we maximize growth and maximize un- unleash human potential. We have a lot of challenges in the twenty first century, like you know global warming, right? Uh, and we need a lot of people to deal. And right. so, how do we deal? And this could be one of the ways we deal. What about the higher level jobs? Because I think people talk mostly about the lower level jobs. Mm-hmm. I think higher level jobs are very much at risk. And I think what has happened with this, and that's our listeners in a lot of ways, um, but th- that it's not just lawyers. Like, there's a lot of legal stuff that can be digitized. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot. There's just, it, you can go through every profession of which, of, of the you know, white collar jobs mm-hmm. essentially that are all at risk as far as I can tell. Certainly contract review. And again, you see the mm-hmm. same process. Contract mm-hmm. review was first outsourced to India mm-hmm. to very smart, well educated Indians who cost less mm-hmm. and is quickly being automated. And you'll see that in a lot of things. Certainly all the talk a few years ago is how do we automate uh, or digitize higher ed, you mm-hmm. know, a field that I'm more familiar with than mm-hmm. law. Um, so I think that, you know, one of the things that we can do is to think about how do we use this as an opportunity to train billions of people and educate billions of people. But you know, we're also learning that, in fact, MOOCs did not destroy the university, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's nice to create different levels of education, levels of YouTube. Like YouTube, I learned how to play guitar this summer watching YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. I can make cheese now. It's pretty amazing, um, at least for me. I love cheese. And I think that's going to be like that with law, too, that it's going to – part of being a lawyer will be how do I learn what I need to learn, just-in-time education? Mm-hmm. How do I manage the AIs to do code or you know, contract review to become more productive? And so I think that's that's part of what's going to happen is that – people who are higher up the ladder are going to be trying to figure out the right balance between handing off work to an AI, also receiving work from an AI, mm-hmm. and, and then and that sort of layer cake of human AI, human AI. It's not going to be one directional like it is now where sure. a few algorithms are telling us what to do. We're going to be working in both directions at once. Okay. So you, not a journalist, have sort of a, a rosy idea of of the gig economy of We're automation. Bleak. We're very bleak. Yeah, I, I bleak. Everything's dark and dystopian. But um, <laughs> in your book, you describe two sort of ways forward, uh, a conservative and a radical path that would sort of, that would make automation, that would make the you know, gig jobs or, or whatever the future of our jobs look like um, sustainable. Do you want to describe those two? Sure. I think we already kind of touched on them. So you know, one one is we sort of figure out how to transition away. So one of the things I think about a lot is how the workplace is like a marriage in the sense that marriage is disappearing. And the only people who get to be married anymore are fantastically wealthy and educated, right? 
Same thing with secure work. So a few elite people get to have secure work and everybody else is in this world of insecurity. And just the same way we are redefining how our society supports the children to come out of marriage, we need to redefine how we think about the benefits that and rights and obligations that float out of a workplace. And one way is to just look to the 401k, right? The 401k is a pretty conservative solution to, for retirement. And what you do there is you just, every time you get paid, you put a little money into a retirement account. And now it's tied to a job. But you could easily imagine just creating a more universal system of portable benefits. So you get these benefits no matter which job you're at. Yeah. So as you move from your your gig to gig, your 1099 to your 1099, uh, you get sort of a slice of that money goes into an account for your health or your retirement or your child care. And right now it's really onerous because we assume everybody has these W-2 stable jobs. So we, mm-hmm. we just, that's, that's a conservative, just fix that, make it, tra- make it transactional, make it easier, and businesses can create a more fluid workforce. Now, a more radical solution is what we just talked about. How do we think about, I, I don't want to say, you know, socialism, but in this sort of how do we make capitalism work for everybody so that um, our corporations aren't just accruing money to the top 0.1%. Mm-hmm. And so that we socialize the benefits as well as the risks and without sort of getting rid of all the wonderful things about markets that Mm -hmm. make our lives easier and more efficient. So I think that's a more radical path, sort of rethinking how corporations can work. I mean, what would it take for any of this to happen? Um, Unfortunately, I think it's going to take a a giant economic crisis. Um, I think it's going to take people in the streets realizing that things have gone horribly awry. It would take um, political parties realizing they can't just do quick fixes, that we're actually at an epical shift. And, and the epical shift is not the smartphone. The epical shift is that individuals can sell, consume, and work globally, maybe through a corporation, maybe not. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what's truly different about right now, that the corporation is no longer necessary to organize workers. Right. Uh, and I think that is something we have not wrestled with. And we keep trying to put everything back in Pandora's box, but the corporation as it existed is no longer, no longer there. And so we we can't put band-aids on our employment law. uh, So let me ask you this then to finish up. um, And then Ronnie may have a final question is what can tech do to help assuage this? Because they're causing and creating a lot of the, the things they're making are moving to this. Certainly when I talk to my fellow uh, computer scientists at Cornell, um, Mm -hmm. they're very afraid they are building AI and they're afraid that is the equivalent of the atomic bomb. Mm -hmm. So not just technologists, but also computer scientists and academics. And I think what's important to do is have conversations. So Mm -hmm. everybody knows what they do, but they don't always know what it means. Mm -hmm. And it's very... Really? We hadn't noticed. (laughs) Hello, Cambridge Analytica. Nice to meet you. Uh, Exactly. So I think it's important to have these conversations um, across disciplines, outside of our own narrow fields. I think it's important for technologists to be a bit more humble about the kinds of problems that they're solving. So one of the things I write about in the book is that technology tends to solve for social problems Mm -hmm. and the problems are the people who can afford to fix them. So the problems of a 23-year-old bro in Silicon Valley are pretty much dialed. Yeah, you know my joke, right? No, I don't know. San Francisco is assisted living for millennials. <laughs> Thank one. you very much. I'm <laughs> appearing nightly. Um, yeah, so I, true. I, I think it's that... It's so true, those lazy... <laughs> Whatever. 
I used Grubhub last night. It was delicious. So I, I think that, uh, I think, yeah, so I think that we need to have these conversations. It's wonderful that so many people are excited about the UBI. I think it's kind of condescending to think that people have no value unless they're programmers, which mm-hmm. is often the vibe I get when I'm in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And it's also ridiculous to think that everyone, everyone is going to become a programmer and yeah. only they will have jobs in the future. So I think sort of being open about what is valuable, um, going forward about being human. For me, this is a wonderful opportunity. It could also go very badly if we don't re- make the right choices. And it's important to emphasize that we do have choices, that it's not determinant. All right. So um, I guess some of the people who are really pushing this uh, UBI are you know, Mark Zuckerberg, a lot of the, the CEOs of, of the world. What do we have to do to make, not, not necessarily UBI, or, but um, any of these social, uh, I guess you would call them just like nets happen? Um, I think we need to realize uh, what has changed in the workplace and it's not just enough trying to, when I talk to a lot of people, they think that we can sort of cram ourselves back into the regulatory state of the post-war and without having the attendant social environment, you know, and and the social environment is not just the quote-unquote restoration of unions, qua unions. Uh, it's it's about the voice for workers, mm-hmm. you know, in a distributed just-in-time economy, in a logistically-based economy that we don't have. The AFL doesn't do it. The CIO doesn't do it. Right. And we need to have a new kind of worker's voice, just the way the CIO sort of organized industrial workers. And that worker's voice is essential because laws don't fix the economy. Laws sort of address little problems at the error edges, but they don't address this question of power. And it's power that really makes the economy go. And I, so I think that's what we need to do. And, and also this question of who counts, who deserves to have a secure, not a secure job, but a secure life. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that's the difference. We thought that a secure job led to a secure life, and that's what we were solving for. But we really need to make sure everybody gets that going forward. Or welcome to populism, right? That's what or, we're saying now. Or welcome to populism. And Mark Zuckerberg won't have to worry about the UBI. He'll have to worry about... All of us coming to his house, uh, whether the one he's know, lived in or the one the he's thing. bought next they're door. They're moving to New Zealand, in case you're interested. And they're giant really? compounds. No, you know about They have all, all these plans to get off. They want to go to oh, Mars. Right, 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 they right. want to get off the Earth. And they better move fast if, <laughs> in a lot of ways. You're right, 100%. This is really an important issue, and there's all kinds of issues that sort of hang off of this over the future. So we'd love to have you back at some point. Happy to and be And it was here. great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show, and thanks to Ronnie for joining us as well. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find more episodes of Recode Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you didn't like the interview, I don't really want to hear from you. You just want to say hi. Tweet at me, I guess. I'm Kara Swisher on Twitter. Ronnie, you are? I'm Ronnie Mola. I'm the data editor at Recode. At Ronnie Mola? At Ronnie Mola. Lewis Simon. Oh, well, there we go. We got all the good ones. Now that you're done with this, go check out the latest episode of Recode Media. You can find that show wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Saturday. Tune in then. 